Mental health can be a difficult topic to talk about. I'd like to change that. I'm Marcus Pibworth and welcome to the Ministry of Change podcast. Hello, um, welcome back. Um, I've been, yeah, what have I been doing? I've been pondering why it's uh, important to collect these stories about mental health. I think we all have this sort of this desire to be listened to, but quite often in the world we we speak before we have anything to say. I think you only really need to switch on the TV or open up your Facebook feed to know this is true. I think to tell stories is important, but to be able to tell a really good story, I think it's also important to have the skills to listen to others and to really listen to yourself. So I think often when we begin to struggle with life and really sort of reach those trying parts, that's when we, we're we sort of driven to stop and listen to ourselves. I mean, like to really listen what's going on sort of deep, deep down. I think in also, in, in many cases, this leads people to be more empathic and, and actually listen to others. They realise that this reality that they've been living has sort of hit hit a wall and there's, there's sort of nowhere else to go with it. And maybe there's something more out there worth listening to and exploring. So in the midst of this inner turmoil, the gift of listening to yourself and the gift of listening to others manifests. And this in turn makes a story that results in one of extreme value. So I, th- I think, so today it's uh, it's Scott who will be sharing his story. And it's a, it's a story about depression and a journey of self-discovery that this opened up for him. I met Scott a couple of years ago when we were both living in Brighton. I guess the first time we sat down and had this conversation about mental health, I was surprised actually to hear that Scott had struggled with depression for a number of years I felt that he was the sort of he's the sort of person that you notice when he walks into a room. He's tall, he has this sort of playful and inquisitive energy that rubs off on you. And at the time when I f- first met him, he had long, wild, bouncy hair. I think he had this air of confidence that I admired. And, and he was someone who I sort of could tell had it all worked out. But I guess that's, yeah. I mean, people often say to me, bizarrely, like, oh, you seem very confident and you must be very brave to go out there and explore mental health and sort of go in this sort of journey of discovery and I I guess I didn't really ever relate to that because like I well now I do more I, I realize that like yeah maybe I am confident and brave but also I'm scared I'm a scared little boy I'm an emotional wreck I'm full of self-doubt I'm everything I'm I'm, I'm all parts of the spectrum so I guess the same is true of Scott. He is confident, he is playful and inquisitive, but there's also so many other facets of himself and that's what makes him Scott. That's what makes him the the Scott that I value as a friend and that's why I'm so grateful that he took the time out to share his his story with us. So here it is, here's here's Scott's story. The context of this is being asked to talk a little bit about, I guess, mental health and, and my experience of depression as well. And so when I was thinking about this and, and uh, you know, first, my first thought was, wow, I've had a lot of experiences with difficult uh, mental health periods during my life. So where do I begin sort of thing? Um, and I think um, in trying to order my thoughts, 
I, I've put them in sort of a bit of a chronological order um, and sort of structured them around a few moments where I guess I learned something about my mental health or my mental well-being. And, and I feel like, you know, that that's important because it, it reflects the wider, you know, message for me, which is as I've gotten older, I've learned that this isn't, you know, something that I'm going to fix at some point and will forever go away. And it's like to be kind of checked off a list. And I've developed a kind of growing sense of acceptance that my mental health is, is just, you know, it's, it's an evolving thing. Um, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. And as I've gone through life, I've sort of had a few experiences along the way that have helped me develop a better sense of what it is. And I guess helped me come to a, you know, a growing sense of acceptance about what it is or what it isn't and, and how I can live with it. So, so yeah, when I was thinking about how to order my thoughts, it actually made me reflect a bit more on what is this thing called mental health and, you know, is it a task to be achieved or a, you know, a disease to be combated or is it just, you know, it's me, right? It's, it's, it's part of my mind. Um, it's, sits alongside all the wonderful bits of my mind, the bits that I love that are really helpful when I feel like my brain is really working, you know, to help me. It's no different to those bits actually. And so that's a kind of growing realization I've had over the years, which I found to be really helpful because it's also helped me to probably go a bit easier on myself. And that's part of that interesting challenge around mental health. Um, so I sort of, um, because I'm obsessed with making things ordered and structured, I've given these, these, loose areas some some titles and the first one is um is emotions um and that that really is about um is about my experience of mental health before i really could have ever called it mental health um and that's thinking about being a young kid and and being a young kid who was very intense and emotional um very um very at the whim of my emotions, I would say. So I would become very agitated or very angry quite quickly, quite frustrated, I guess. And, uh, and then I would just explode in emotion. And sometimes that was <clears throat> outwardly very angry. And other times it was just inwardly very intense. So I would just retreat inside. And I, you know, I remember going for lunch with a an aunt of mine in Spain once, um, this was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. And she very happily re regaled my wife with a story of how at the age of four, I sort of flew off the handle about something completely insignificant and when stood in the corner for hours on my own, staring at the corner of the wall, <laughs> stewing in this very intense way. And I, I don't remember that, but it, it rang so true when she told it, I sort of chuckled to myself. And so I remember being, as a young child, very feeling like I couldn't control my emotions and feeling like that was sort of an illness of sorts. Like, why weren't other people experiencing this, you know, intensity of emotion? And why weren't they so overcome and overwhelmed by things, you know? Um, and, and I guess, you know, as my first... Now I look back on it, it's kind of my first experience of, of, of wrestling with something and really having no skills to deal with it. And so dealing with it in the only way I knew how at that time, which was to do a bunch of other things that seemed much healthier or, or seemed like a good outlet for those things. So one was read a lot. 
to basically spend a lot of time with myself um, reading because that avoided being in situations where I would become agitated or emotional or incredibly angry. And I felt like I could kind of channel the emotion into the things that I was reading. So I spent a lot of time reading. And that was kind of quite an introverted exercise, I guess, in some respects. And the other one, because I went to a, you know, an all boys boarding school was like sport, you know, you know, throw yourself into sport, you know, this, which I now kind of see so, so funnily as, as like an archetypal kind of an outlet for male rage. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and tackle someone really hard or run really fast or do something really strong. Um, and actually, you know, funnily enough, kind of goes full circle right now. I, now I realize that exercise is a really important part of my, of my management of, of, of how my health is mentally. Um, but at the time, you know, I obviously wasn't consciously thinking of that. I just got involved in a lot of sport and I did a lot of reading. And so I sort of tried to channel, you know, those emotions, which I didn't really know how to handle them. I, I just figured a way out. You know, I figured a way to deal with them, which was somewhat avoidant, somewhat kind of sensible. But it's just all I knew at that time. And so, um, so I'd say as a strategy for dealing with, you know, the underlying emotional state, it was moderately successful. You know, I was pretty good at sport. I liked reading. <laughs> you know, I found some ways to, to kind of, to, I guess, um, make situations go away that were potentially very uncomfortable and caused me pain. Um, um, alongside kind of, alongside this, there's a, there's a, there's a secondary piece, which is a secondary, very important emotional piece that was happening at the same time. Again, at the time, I wasn't really you know, thinking about it in these ways, but you know, distance gives you some perspective. And the thing that was happening is my mum, when I was age nine, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And at the time, I don't think, you know, none of us really had any clue what that meant. But um, over the next 20 years, what you see is a kind of gradual decline. It's a debilitating disease. So you see a gradual physical and mental decline in, in, in her. And I think at the time I didn't really know how to deal with this. Um, it was emotionally really overwhelming to kind of, first of all, just contemplate it. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. Didn't really understand what it meant for, for my mum and, and what that in turn meant for me in terms of my relationship with my mum, who I was very close to. Um, And so I think it became more and more emotionally confronting. It became more and more challenging to see her, you know, struggle with her sight, then struggle with walking and become less independent and become more dependent on us. And that I just, I didn't really know how to deal with that. I didn't really know how to confront that. And so at the time, I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but basically I was closing myself down. I was sort of shutting myself emotionally down around that topic. You know, I was trying to basically cut, cut myself off from thinking too emotionally about that topic because each time I did, I found it too confronting and I found it too sort of painful. And so at the time there, I, I sort of, I decided subconsciously, I guess, to, to detach myself from the emotions around that. And so at the same time, you know, I'd say that, you know, as, as a young, young child, so from four or five onwards, I, I've got memories of this. And then as a, as, as a sort of nine, from nine till, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, really shutting myself, closing pieces of myself off emotionally. 
to try and cope uh, and to try and help me mentally kind of function. Um, and as we all know, um, probably at this point, you can sort of bottle or, or you can concrete over those emotions for a while, but they always find a way to come out. Um, and that's, and that brings me beautifully to my, to my next little segment that I've designed, which is, which I just called events really, but it's, it's just an easy way to think about um, the first time I guess that some of those, those beautifully contained emotions exploded in a very ugly way. And it was the first real kind of moment where I, I think I experienced a bit of a breakdown really. It's where those, um, you know, those things that I'd probably tried not to wrestle with and tried to push away kind of came to the surface. Um, and that's, you know, when my mum died, I was living out in Australia, uh, you know, and I had, I had a very sort of, I'd say I had a very stable life, which was good. I was in a well-paying job that I enjoyed. Um, I had a good group of friends, a good social circle. Um, I was, you know, I think in a really good, strong place in my, in my marriage and in general in my relationships. And then I got the phone call and, you know, realized I'd rushed back to the UK, managed to spend a little bit of time with mum before she passed away. And then pretty much, you know, not long after that kind of had to go back to Australia, right? Life kind of continues. Um, and so I had to go back to Australia and I felt like I should get back to real life as it were and get out of that um, sort of emotionally very intense grieving period. And I went back and, you know, I sort of felt like to some extent I'd come to terms with things or I'd, um, I'd at least had a time to you know, let a lot of emotion out. When I got back you know, to work and to life, I found it very hard. I found it very hard to talk about what I was experiencing. I found it very hard to express the emotions that I was experiencing on a regular basis. And, and I guess that you know, I, I didn't really know what to do. So what I did have at that time as well as, you know, a wife that was very understanding and other family members who I could talk to about it. I also had a boss who was really great at this time. Pascal was his name, still is his name actually. But, um, and, and I sort of, I, I felt um, ready enough to confide in him, not because I thought he was, you know, going to be incredibly supportive, although I did. Really, the reason I confided in him is I was really struggling. And I think it was showing in my work. I was incredibly distracted. I was sitting in meetings, being asked lots of very important questions about projects as they were going on. And, you know, in my head, all I could, I, I just had intense feelings of guilt about having been away during the period that my mum was sick. I had intense feelings of um, shame about having bottled up these emotions, you know. And I really, I was, I was in a very dark place in my head. Um, and I was, you know, sitting in these meetings, desperately trying to contribute and, you know, being required to be um, a head of social media for a full service creative advertising agency and frankly, really struggling to just be not a complete basket case. And so on the one hand, I sort of knew Pascal well enough to know that he would probably be somebody I could talk to about this, but I also had to talk to him because as my boss, I think it was showing. And so I confided in him and we talked and um, he was supportive and also kind of pushed me to try and seek out other help. Um, 
And so I, I found a psychologist and started working with a psychologist and we started working on some cognitive behavioral therapy, which in a way I guess was grief counseling, but also trying to help me get out of the cycle of very damaging thoughts that I had, which were around really around me feeling like I had let my family down and that I was sort of worthless. And, and these, these feelings in a way that I guess really were the same feelings I'd had when I was a kid. They were feelings of inadequacy. They were feelings of um, sort of anger and resentment towards myself, not being good enough, you know, not being able to do something, you know, and therefore being a failure. You know, those were the feelings I'd sort of bottled up and pushed away when I was younger. And I'd plowed my energies into things where I didn't, you know, where I, I knew I could be good at them and I knew I could succeed in them. And therefore I wouldn't have to confront the negative experiences I had around failure and not feeling like I had worth. And these things sort of came up again around my mum. And so the CBT I found to be really positive. Um, it was as much as anything, somebody who was neutral and independent that I could talk to. And I actually probably could say things to him that I'd maybe never said to anybody. Um, things, things about, you know, really dark thoughts that I'd had about like not wanting to exist, for example, you know, I'd had that thought a lot at that time and I, it, it hadn't manifested in any way in terms of, I want to kill myself or I don't you know, want to be here, but I felt a deeply profound um, sense of, I didn't want to be where I was and I didn't really want to be who I was. And those, those were, you know, those are very hard thoughts to have um, very dark thoughts to have. And, actually very difficult thoughts to communicate even to the people that you love very closely because in my head I felt like they were you know they yes there was a sort of sense that they were weaknesses things that you know I maybe shouldn't be thinking and that I shouldn't really confide them to somebody else but also I felt like that was a lot of burden to put on somebody else and so working with John the psychologist I was working with at the time on some CBT I found to be really helpful I also, at the same time, started on a course of um, uh, citalopram, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, a particular type of antidepressant. Um, so relatively low dose of that. Um, and to begin with, I'm not really sure I knew whether it was having an impact or whether it wasn't, but it felt like something that I could you know, be exploring as a way to try and help me get out of this very dark place that I was in and, and I guess all around all of this, the thing that I guess I found really interesting about it is, again, sort of stepping back from it and where I am now in this position that I'm in now and being able to look at, you know, the way I tried to address that situation is I was really focused on trying to fix the problem, right? I was really focused on, you know, wow, I'm in this really dark place. I could kind of relate to why I was there. Even at the time I thought, well, my mum's died, right? You know, everyone can sympathize with the fact that, you know, you're going to be doing it tough at this time and that you're going to be grieving and, you know, but I don't think I'd really embraced the idea that, you know, this was deeper than that, that, you know, mum dying was obviously a very important trigger for a lot of things, but it wasn't in and of itself kind of where this, this anger, this, shame this resentment this sense of self-loathing um, came from you know it was a very big trigger for a lot of those things and then I tried to address those things 
through both medication and, and, you know, psychotherapy, I guess, with cognitive behavioral therapy. But I never really got deep into it. I never really got deep enough, I think, because I still very much in my head had this mindset that I need to just deal with this problem so that I can get back to living my life, right? So that I can get back to being a good head of social media, so that I can get back to being, you know, Scott, the sensible Scott that's not having a breakdown all the time. And so, you know, this event-based trigger was really about, you know, something happened, now I need to solve that so that I can get back to what life was like before. And so I think I did a lot of really positive work around mum dying. And, you know, in fact, I feel, you know, I'm in a very positive place about her death and, and the way I relate to that. But ultimately, I think in a way, I sort of tried to move on too quickly from that experience, or maybe I didn't have the skills or the depth of understanding and, and I guess the guide to help me really keep digging and to try and address some of those things that, that were going on beneath. Um, and so I think, you know, that was a really important set of experiences around my mental health. And, and it pushed me towards an understanding of the need to reach out and seek proper professional medical attention, which was actually hugely helpful at the time. Um, but again, I, I maybe didn't take it quite as far as I might have done. And, and I also sort of treated it like a, something happened, I need to solve that thing, and then we get back to life, rather than a, okay, what does this say about who I am and, and how my mind works, and how can I work with my mind to try and kind of live a long and healthy life um, with this. And so um, after mum, I sort of, you know, going, going beyond past that point, I'd say my mental health, you know, fluctuated. It was generally pretty good, but there would be periods of intense lows where I would feel, um, you know, I'd just basically have to give myself a pep talk every morning to kind of get up and go off and and put this, you know, put the smiling Scott face on the, the sort of extroverted, very bubbly, talkative, you know, engaging Scott that people feel that they know. I had to be that Scott. A lot of a lot of days, I had to work very hard to be that Scott because that's not who I felt like I was. And I found that to be very difficult, partially because I felt very inauthentic, um, or to put it less sort of, I guess, um, therapy speak. I just felt like I was being two-faced, literally. I, you know, I would be in situations where I was like, oh, how are you doing? And I was like, yeah, great, you know, talking about all this stuff going on. And, you know, but at the very same moment I'm saying those words in my head, you know, I'm like, stop lying to them, you know. Why can't you just be honest with people, for fuck's sake, you know. So I had this, a lot of this double talk going, very negative double talk happening in my life, pretty much 24-7, you know. But I'd sort of said to myself, you know, I need to get on with life. You know, and it, you know, in a way, the further I got away from mum's death, the harder it became to justify to myself being in this space of, you know, feeling terrible about myself. Because I was like, fucking hell, man, get over it. You know, yes, you're going to feel the grief. Yes, you're going to still, but, you know, you need to move on with your life now. And so I got into this cycle of kind of beating myself up for being depressed and then saying, well, I shouldn't be depressed. I've got this wonderful life. You know, at this point, Marshall, my son, had been born. I've got this wonderful wife, a great job, a kid, you know, who I'm very much in love with and, and have a strong connection to. And I'm sort of sitting there being like, you are the most selfish human being on planet Earth right now, right? You've got everything you could hope for in your life. Um, 
you have so much more than so many people. You have such joy and richness in your life. And here you are just, you know, feeling shit about everything. You know, it's, to me, I was like, you're just being selfish, right? You're just selfish and you need to get on with your life. And so I sort of plowed through it. You know, you figure out ways to get through the lows. You figure it out. Sometimes you just don't go to work. I'm sick. I've got a stomach bug. I can't be there. You, know, you make excuses because actually some days you can't cope. Um, and, and, you know, in amongst that time, you have tremendous highs as well, where you feel really switched on and, yeah, there's joyous moments. And you think, God, this is it. I've nailed it. Life is so easy. I'm having a great time, you know. And so, you know, that, that was really it for, for me going forward. And I sort of felt like, well, that's life, right? This is just what it is for now. Those days where I'm feeling really terrible, I've just got to, you know, slap myself around the face a bit, pick myself up, dust myself off and just go forward. And if I just keep going forward long enough, that stuff will fall away and I'll experience those highs again. So I went on like that. And so then um, it kind of brought me to, you know, the next big moment, I guess, um, if I want to call it a chapter, which is at this point we'd, uh, we'd by, you know, by no real plan, we'd ended up in Indonesia and I had taken on a job working for a big global advertising agency, uh, heading up social media for them. And it was a big step up for me professionally. I was going from managing small teams of four or five people to managing 35 people a lot more responsibility in terms of money and a lot more responsibility in terms of what was required of me within that size of an organization. Um, and we went out to Indonesia and it was this very exciting kind of experience, you know, moving the family out there, looking for houses, totally different culture. You know, it felt very much like a kind of, wow, you know, living this expat lifestyle. This is really exciting. And in amongst all of that, I, um, I found myself to be basically really struggling to cope, cope with the stresses and the pressures of moving into a new country, a new culture, operating in a very different sort of um, workspace and workplace, and also operating in a very politically um, divisive and challenging environment, um, small p politics, um, the office politics. And so I was really struggling in the role. And, uh, and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, you know, to not struggle, right. To be strong. Uh, and, and a lot of that was a conversation with myself about shame again, actually. And, uh, and about, you know, you've brought your whole family out here, you know, you've uprooted them. They've come out here with you, you know, pull yourself together. You need to do this, right. You need to succeed in this so that we can all be here together. And so, you know, I was in, you know, how I've sort of described this is really the environment. You know, I was, I was in an environment that now looking back on it was just full of really problematic triggers for me. Um, and triggers really for the sorts of things I hadn't dealt with in previous episodes, if we want to call it that. Um, so lots of conflict, lots of people saying that's shit, that's terrible, do it again which if you're somebody who already has feelings of worthlessness and self-doubt can be quite challenging experiences to have if every day you go into work and you know you feel like you're meant to be leading, which you are, you're meant to be leading, and you feel very much like you're not, again, that comes with a lot of sense of failure, guilt, you know, bound up in those sorts of things. And so basically I was really, really struggling. And at the same time, I was sort of 
you know, heaping all this other guilt on top of myself for maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm failing in this role and what's going to happen with Marshall. He started school in Indonesia at this point. What's going to happen with Carla? You know, she's moved her whole life out here with me and everything. So I'd sort of engaged in this process whereby it was all about me, right? You know, it was all about, I'm screwing up, I'm failing. Therefore everyone else is going to hate me because I'm, you know, worthless. And, you know, I should be this great man providing for the family, doing great work, you know, the rock at the center of this all. So that's the story I was telling myself. And unsurprisingly, I found myself in a really, really dark place. And, and actually at this point, I sort of, I think it's the biggest breakdown I've had in my life. It's, it's a point at which I, I felt um, actually so, so kind of lost and broken that I didn't know what to do and had no, nothing I could do. So I sort of just completely switched off. I mean, I think if you speak to Carla and if you speak to uh, Carla's cousin, Kristen, who was staying with us at the time, I think maybe a word they would use would be catatonic. So I'd sort of just switched off from life, really. You know, I had the thousand yard stare. I, you know, I had no way to relate to the experiences that were happening around me. I was sort of shell-shocked by the whole experience. So I failed in the job. That, that job kind of, we ended that job by mutual consent. But basically, you know, that's a, that's a nice way to dress up the fact that there's no way that that could continue. The same day that Marshall had his very first day at school was the day that my contract was terminated. So that was, you know, a very confronting situation to be in. A day when I, you know, on the face of it, should have been very excited and happy for this very kind of momentous moment for my young son. I was actually just a complete wreck at that point. So coming out of that experience, um, you know, lots of people were there trying to help me and support me. And, and I've always been very fortunate in that respect that I've had people around me trying to guide me, but I really didn't know what to do. And um, Kristen at that time told me something which at, even at the time was helpful and helped me move forward, which was um, stop asking yourself why this is happening to you and start asking yourself why it's happening for you. And, you know, it sounds a little bit like a Hallmark greeting card. It sounds a little bit cheesy. <laughs> the kind of thing that might appear on a, an inspirational quote card on Instagram. But at the time it was actually probably the, in a way, the only thing I, I managed to latch onto. Um, and it was a way for me to say, this is happening for a reason. And I don't understand what that reason is, but I need to think about that. And so it gave me an opportunity to, to try and realize that the brokenness, the sort of sense of self-worth, that wasn't there, you know, the inability to cope with my own emotions, that they were things that I couldn't just brush aside or, or paper over or treat as though I've dealt with those things. You know, I've medicated them away or I've, you know, done some CBT, a 12 week course, therefore I'm done. Right. I think what it laid bare is that under pressure, I cracked. And that when I cracked, the real stuff came up to the surface and that had always been there. It's the same real stuff that I'd had when I was four or five years old that you know, had lots more real stuff piled on top of it over the many years and it just kept coming through. And really the experience in Indonesia triggered for me a longer um, exploration of who I am and what I am and you know, more of a turn inwards in some respects to try and say, okay, what are these things that continue to be there? You know, where does the anger come from? Where does the sense of self-loathing come from? 
or the lack of self-love come from? You know, and those are questions that I, you know, that I just, I just hold with me now. You know, they aren't questions that I have an easy solution for. Um, they're questions that I continue to look for answers for. And, and really that, you know, that, that sums up kind of where I am now a lot more, which is perhaps just an acceptance that these are questions that are, are in me and that require my attention, but that I probably won't answer in the next six weeks, or I won't answer them because I sat down with a psychologist you know, once a week for 12 weeks, or I won't answer them because I went on a weekend retreat, right? Those are all things that I can do to try and help myself develop a stronger understanding of my own mental well-being, you know, what it means to be me. Um, but they aren't necessarily just solutions to a problem. What they are is um, practices that I can engage in that help me develop a better relationship with myself and my mind, you know, to be kinder with myself to understand what it means to love myself and then to treat myself with the kind of compassion that, 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 that would flow from that kind of self-love, you know, to, to listen to the double talk and to, you know, to, to work out strategies to intervene in the double talk. Right. And I think along the way, things that have helped me on that journey are also just understanding who I am and what do I want? You know, what are the things I want from life? So developing that sense of self value and self purpose, you know, has also helped me to try and find those things in my life. So it's helped me to find environments that are positively nurturing the bits of me that, you know, that I need to nurture, you know, not taking myself and putting myself in a very hostile environment and expecting myself to thrive. You know, that's probably not the smartest thing I could have done on reflection. So it's finding out ways that I can continue this journey of self-discovery. You know, how does my mind work? How can I be kind to myself? How can I love myself? And to do that in, you know, helpful environments with the right kind of guides, with the right kinds of support. And so that's where I am now. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, I guess, a much more open space where I feel like mental health isn't something to be solved or, or a problem to be addressed. It just is what it is. It's the mind that you live with for the rest of your life. And, and I want to develop a really close relationship with that mind. And that's the work that I'm doing now. You know, that's the work that I try and do something on every day if I can. And, you know, some days I wake up and those same dark thoughts are there. I just feel like I'm better equipped now than I ever have been to try and, you know, move forward in a healthy way with those thoughts. You know, not, not pushing them to one side, not papering over them, not pretending they're not there, not avoiding them, but just understanding that they're there, sometimes accepting that they're there being compassionate with myself around my feelings towards those thoughts. And then, you know, understanding that those thoughts aren't the whole of me. They aren't, you know, everything that makes up who I am. And so that's where I find myself now, which is the best, the best place I've ever been mentally. Um, I think because I have that higher level of self understanding and that's, that's what I want to focus on now, deepening my self understanding. And with that comes the compassion and love that, that helps, I think, you know, develop a healthy mind. Oh, great wonderful thanks so much scott for sharing that story um i really like that bit sort of not why is this happening to me but why is this happening for me i remember when scott told me this a, a while ago yeah it really struck me the importance of that and yeah I, i've carried that with me and i think it's really helped me 
over the last sort of year or so. Um, so anyway, I hope you took a lot from that and thanks. Um, great. If you if if you like these uh, sort of the mental health stories and it appeals to you in in that you'd like to share your own story, then do get in contact. Um, uh, go go to my website, which is www.theministryofchange.org and on there there's a sort of more information about my sort of mental health journey around the UK in my van and you can also sort of find out my um sort of read blog posts and also find out ways of getting in contact with me more through social media or or my email I'll just give it to you my email is marcus at the ministry of dot org uh, yes, I really, really would look forward to like hearing from you um, if you want to share or if you want to invite me somewhere um, to come and sort of explore some aspects of sort of mental health or like well-being or sort of generally sort of how to sort of, sort of live a more sort of open and exploratory life, then do get in contact with me. I'd love to come drive and, and come and meet you and, and chat more. Um, uh, yeah, also like if you like this, it would be great if so, anyway, if you could go on to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. I've only got a couple of ratings and reviews so far, but I know the figures show me that there's slightly more people than that listening. So it would be lovely if you, one of those people, if you could rate and review it, because then I can sort of help these stories get out to more people. I mean, I, I really feel passionate that it's important. And um, yeah, also like I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, yeah, how am I funding the project is something how I of, I often get asked and the answer is not very well <laughs> but I'm just set up a Patreon page and um, I've put the link down in the notes uh, but the website's patreon.com forward slash ministry of change and um, on there you can sort of contribute uh, to the journey um, financially and, and with that you get access to sort of extra things I, i'll promise i'll put some lovely things up there extra podcasts and videos musings and a, there's also a chance to sort of like have a video call uh, there's lots of things go and check it out but like if you can't contribute to it please please just share 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 and um uh yeah uh i don't think it's really to satisfy my ego i think generally it's because i would just I don't know, I really want these stories to get out to as many people as possible. If they can help people, then it just seems important. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm starting to ramble on a bit, but um, thank you very much. Thank you to Scott. Thank you to you. And yeah, great. I'll, I'll, I'll be back more with some more stuff soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.